Welcome to Unwanted Guests, the podcast that teaches you about insects and other pests that may join you in and around your home. It's brought to you by Texas A&M AgriLife Extension and the Texas A&M Department of Entomology. We're your hosts, Wizzy Brown, Robert Puckett, Molly Keck, and Janet Hurley. Thanks for joining us this time on Unwanted Guests, and we are going to be talking about kissing bugs on this episode. So kissing bugs have, you know, it's kind of hit or miss on press that they get. Sometimes, you know, somebody catches wind of them and then we really start getting the press contacting us and wanting information on them. Um, but for me, I, I kind of think kissing bugs have been here for a really long time and I don't find that there's something to really panic over. I mean, I do think that people need to be aware of them. I think that they need to know how to identify them or know resources to go to if they need to get them identified. But this one, in my opinion, is kind of another one that it really goes back to exclusion. What are y'all's thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, this is a fairly large insect and it, it needs a pretty significant um, avenues of entrance into a house. So, you know, if we, we, we've talked about this about a number of other insect pests, you know, maintaining good door sweeps, screens on your house, weep hole covers can go a long way from, from, for preventing these guys from getting into a structure. So Molly, do you want to talk to people about um, kissing bugs and how are they different from other assassin bugs that pe people might come across in their landscape? Yeah. So kissing bugs definitely have a lot of lookalikes and they're also one of those insects that um, if you don't look at insects all the time, I can very easily see how you could confuse them with things that are either assassin bugs or their relatives, some of the sap sucking true bugs, but uh, kissing bugs have a really skinny head compared to like your non assassin type bugs. So that's similar to other assassin bugs. Cause I always think of it in terms of they have to seek out their prey. So they have this teeny tiny head. They kind of have a neck. They have to be able to look around. Whereas if you're a sap sucking insect, you just kind of dock down, stick your mouth parts in, and you don't really need to look for, for food, actively look for that food. <clears throat> and then the way that they differ from other assassin bugs to me is that they have this orange or red, black and reddish orange checkered pattern along the margin of their abdomen and their wings don't cover the whole body. They kind of sit inside. So you can see that red and black checkered pattern that bands them. And that can be confusing for some people because there are squash bugs. Uh, I think mainly squash bugs kind of have an orangey checkered pattern or appear to, but again, you're looking at the shape of that skinny, skinny head, almost like a needle. And then that checkered pattern around, around the abdomen. And, and, you know, I don't, wouldn't get like your face right up to it, but from fairly far away, you can get a good idea that those wings are nice and skinny. Um, they're not going to turn around like and attack you, right. Jump on your face or anything like that. So you can get fairly close. Or if you find them dead, you can take a look at that, that pattern along the abdomen. 
Is that, that's the main way that you identify him, right? I just had a vision of like the face sucker from alien jumping on somebody, (laughs) but yeah. So I guess we probably need to say that kissing bugs are a type of an assassin bug. So assassin bugs are in the same family. They're in regiviti, but kissing bugs are a smaller group. That's it's going to be in the genus triatoma. So while all kissing bugs are a type of assassin bug, not all assassin bugs are kissing bugs. So there, there is a difference. And I, I agree with you um, on the, the fins, usually how I describe them with their wings in the middle of the abdomen there. It reminds me of like an old, I don't know what, 57 Chevy or something. If you look at the trunk of the car, then it has that kind of divot thing. That's where the wings would be, but then it has those big fins on the side and that's where the, the striping or the checker pattern is at least in my brain. I'm sure not everyone's brain works like mine. (laughs) That makes complete sense. Now I'm going to think of that every time I see one. You know, one thing folks should know is that they can always reach out to us for help identifying kissing bugs or any other insect or arthropod, but there, there is a group, um, that's currently doing kissing bug uh, research in Texas at Texas A&M and um, on their homepage at kissingbug.tamu.edu. Um, there's really good photos of, of each of the species of kissing bugs that we have in Texas. Thank you, Robert. That That is an excellent point because we do have multiple species. Um, of course, you know, Texas is a huge state, so there's going to be Uh, multiple that you can. And the thing about kissing bugs that we probably need to mention, they have an incomplete life cycle. So they have an egg, several nymphal stages. And in this case, they have five of them and then they have the adult stage. And so these are going to take a blood meal at each of those life stages outside of the egg. And so not only can the adults feed on you, but the immature stages can as well. And they're not only feeding on human hosts, they'll, they'll feed on other animals as well. So it's not just us. So Molly mentioned some of the kissing bug lookalikes. What, what does everybody commonly get people sending in when they're having kissing bug questions? I know I usually get like leaf footed bugs. Yes. And those ones, leaf footed bugs have, they're a plant feeder. But they, most of them, not all of them, but most of them have a expanded area on their hind leg that looks like a leaf. That's actually where they get their name from. But that's a common one that I normally get. Mm-hmm. I think it's because of their size, because uh, kissing bugs are pretty bulky. Like Robert mentioned, big insects and, the, and some of those leaf footed bug species can be really, really big too. Yeah. I've gotten lots of wheel bugs, mm-hmm. um, leaf footed bugs, y- you name it. Um, the cool thing, like, like, Molly just mentioned that there are big insects. So this is one that you can actually snap a photo with your cell phone camera. It'll probably be, probably be good enough for us to ID. Um, not so with small insects like ants, you know? Right. So a wheel bug is another type of an assassin bug. And those ones are in the adult stage, they're going to be like a big gray um, kind of shield shaped insect. And they have this cog like shape on their thorax area. So it looks like a little, a little wheel again, that's how they get their name. So we're, we're pretty good at naming bugs. So it (laughs) describes them. (laughs) 
Um, so, you know, and of course, when they're in the immature stage, it's a little more tricky because they don't have fully developed wings. And so they, while they look similar to the adults, um, it can be a little confusing, but like Robert mentioned, there is the website that you can go to, to look for pictures that is kissingbug.tmu.edu, or you can snap a picture or something to send to us so we can identify that for you. If you want to capture them, I would recommend that you don't grab it with your hand because that could lead to them biting you. So you can uh, get, I usually recommend like a, I don't know, a zip top bag that you can kind of scoop it up in or a plastic container with a lid or something like that, that you can put it in and then you can stick it in the freezer to kill it. Yeah, the kissing bug lab also says not to touch it, not only because it can bite you, but even after they're dead, not to pick them up because they can have their fecal material, which is where the Chagas disease that I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute is. So you almost use those zip top bags like a glove and pick it up and then, in, you know, invert it. Um, so try, you know, do your best not to touch them at all, if at all possible. Kind of like the, the dog poop scoop, you know, you exactly. invert the bag. <laughs> So Molly mentioned there, there are people and, you know, there is a decent reason that people should be concerned about kissing bugs. They are capable of transmitting disease, not only to humans, but also to companion animals. And for us, usually people are concerned about their dogs. I, I mean, I, I don't think I've had any other animals that people are really worried about. Other than zoos, has anybody else had any, um, any zoos contact them about kissing bugs? We have like a primate refuge place kind of close by and they get concerned about them. I don't know if they've ever had one that, that actually had Chagas disease, but I have heard from the kissing bug lab that, you know, you don't necessarily see it in cats, but dogs and other canines, it's very common because they will eat, they'll play with the bug and eat it. Whereas cats just play with it and don't consume it. And so that's ingesting it as one way they get the disease. All right. So we're rolling into, let's, let's talk about Chagas disease. Who wants to lay that one out? Well, I mean, I, I can attempt to address it. So, so Chagas disease is, um, a disease that presents in humans, um, occasionally, and it's driven by uh, a parasite, Trypanosoma cruzi, that uh, that the kissing bugs themselves are capable of transmitting um, uh, during feeding and through their feces that are often dropped, excuse me, dropped near the site of feeding. Um, yeah, so that that's usually the the route of transmission for humans. You know, you, you've had an insect that's fed on you, taking a blood meal, you get a little well, you scratch. If their feces is nearby, you can kind of scratch that into the wound. Um, and you know, my understanding of of uh, Chagas disease is that um, you know the the immediate presentation of the disease um, has to do with uh, I think swollen lymph nodes and and discomfort, but. It, it, it's, it's one of these diseases, and we don't know as much about it as we do some other diseases, but we know that in some people, there are long-term effects, um, uh, cardiac effects that, that can um, impact uh, their heart musculature. So it's a concern for sure, um, but it's not very prevalent in humans. So like I, I was just visiting that website that we mentioned before and, and um, uh, 
there, there's data that shows that from, from like 93 to 2007, they only identified 48 cases in Texas. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure what the numbers look like today now that we've become more aware. Um, but I do know that it's, it's very prevalent in, in dogs um, and speaking to some of the folks at the, the kissing bug lab. Um, and that has a lot has to do with, you know, sort of the, the avenue of entry of the disease into the animal. For us, we basically have to be fed on. For dogs, like, like someone said earlier, they're, they're, they're actually eating, ingesting the bugs. Um, so the bugs are around. There's no doubt about that. Um, but, but Chagas disease, thankfully, in humans, at least in our state, is um, a very low prevalence. Yeah, because they're just terrible vectors. It's like it's like yeah. the worst way to vector a disease. Yeah, it's you, have the worst. To, you have to poop it out and then rub it in somewhere. And yeah. most of us just aren't going to do that. Mm -hmm. but, but or at they, least but, you would hope so. You'd but hope folks so. should understand they are around. I mean, especially in more arid areas of the state. You know, I, um, my sister's family built a house west of Austin. Um, and she, my sister found one in her house and she sent it to me. And I took it over to the kissing bug lab. And they will actually... Um, test the insects that, that folks find for the presence of Chagas or, or the, the uh, vector uh, of Chagas, Trypanosoma cruza, or the, the disease organism. They can um, send that to the Department of State Health Services as well. There's oh, an awesome. address. Yeah, awesome. But only if it's found outside of your home. I'm, I'm sorry. Only if that's for if it's found. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yes, you can send it to Department of Health Services of state health services because the kissing bug lab will not accept it if it's been found inside of a home. Mm. So we, so around the same time, I was on a trip down to George West, Texas, and we found uh, three kissing bugs that, that came into lights around the place that we were staying. And um, so I gave them those three insects as well. Two of those from George West and the insect from my sister's house were hot with Chagas. Yeah. I get, um, shoot, I get a dozen a year, at least mm -hmm. that will, I'll find a, like for me, it's especially when we're in the summertime, we're swimming in the pool and we have the pool lights on at oh, night. Yeah. They seem to be really attracted to those. And there, there was one night that I caught like six or seven just in one evening. Yeah. And I found them in the house too. I've never sent them to the kissing bug lab, but I have them on, on ice in the freezer. And I'm, I'm very curious to find out if they have it or not, but who knows? So it's, it's, it, it's, it's interesting, right? So, so it's sort of paradoxical. On one hand, these insects are all over the state, right? And, and when you look for them, you can find them. And if you test those, you find that a large percentage of them are hot with Chagas. However, on the other side, um, you know, human Chagas disease is, 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 you know, every one of those cases is very important, of course, but I just mean to say that there are very few of them despite the fact that the disease agent is around and so are the insects. But I think that that is a lot of how the disease is actually transferred or vectored into mm -hmm. humans. Because I mean, mm -hmm. the, the name kissing bug with them, I mean, usually they're going to be feeding around your mouth while you're sleeping. It's not, you know, you're not really paying attention because you're asleep. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times they're going to be feeding around the mouth, but then while they're feeding, they may also be pooping. Mm -hmm. And the fecal material is what actually has that trypanosome in it. So the fecal material is what has to get into either an open wound or into you know, your mouth. So don't mm -hmm. eat them. Or it could get into like if they 
hoop around your eye or something and you rub it into your eye, then right. that can cause it to be transferred into your body. So it's one of those things that it's a little more difficult. It's not like a mosquito where when they, you know, inject their saliva into your body to feed on you, they inject the disease vector as well. This one, it's kind of a two-step process that they're feeding on you to get the blood, but then that you have to have the fecal material. So there's like an extra step in there and that, that can definitely be a barrier for, and a benefit for humans to actually contract the disease because, you know, it does have that extra step. So the other thing that we do need to mention about Chagas disease, or I guess there's a couple, one dogs can also get Chagas disease. So if you have a dog and you have them like in a kennel or something outside, then you do need to pay attention to how that's set up and how it's maintained and try to reduce the amount of kissing bugs that would be in that area or attracted to that area. And then the other thing that I do want to mention, um, we were talking about how you can get the insects tested and how levels may have changed because people are more aware of Chagas disease and it has become a reportable disease now. So if you go to the doctor and they test you for Chagas and it comes out that you're positive, then they actually do report that to the Department of State Health Services. Whereas I forget what year that happened, but it used to be that that wasn't reported. And so I'm sure that the numbers will increase now that people are more aware of it. And that is a reportable disease. Um, so when, when we're talking about Chagas disease, uh, they're not, they're not testing specifically for Chagas. What they're looking for is levels of the parasite in your bloodstream. So the trypanosome, um, will circulate and actually replicate within your bloodstream. And so they're actually looking at levels of that. And so there is a window of time that you'll have that in there and your levels will be building and it'll be replicating and that sort of thing. And that's kind of the, the part of the disease that if you have it in that stage and you get tested, they can say, yes, you have this present and there are medicines that they can give you to kill that specific organism within your bloodstream. But the other thing is if you get past that stage, then you kind of go into, you know, a, I don't know, it's not really a remission, but it's where you're not feeling the effects anymore. You don't have those flu-like symptoms. And then it may be later on down the road, you have secondary effects from the trypanosome. And that could be things like an enlarged heart or an enlarged esophagus or something like that. And in that phase, you can't actively treat the disease. They are essentially going to treat the symptoms of, you know, whatever you have. So that is something to be aware of. And then of course, if you are concerned about your dog having Chagas, um, 
or being bitten or fed on by a kissing bug, you would need to speak with your veterinarian. Um, we talked a little bit earlier about managing kissing bugs, a lot of uh, exclusion to keep them out of the house. I am thinking that um, something else that we need to mention, not only excluding your house to keep them outside, but also we were talking a lot about lighting and how they're attracted to lights. So, you know, Robert mentioned how they were light trapping for insects and they had them flying in and Molly had the lights on in the pool and they were coming in. And so that's something that you need to keep in mind. If you know that you have kissing bugs in the area and you don't want them moving into your house or a particular area of the yard, you might want to really consider the lighting that you have. I know, Janet, you deal a lot with lighting with school IPM. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, the best way that people could light things so it's safe, but not attract insects to specific areas where things can get into the structure? Most insects, not just this particular insect pest, but a lot of our flying insects are attracted to lights and it has to do with lighting being a heat source. So when you're talking about the old fluorescent bulbs that we've all had in the past, they do put out, I mean, if you've ever tried to change one after it's burnt out and you burn your fingers, you know how hot they are. So it has to do with light wave and actually warmth. The interesting thing is, okay, yes, our first generation of insect lights was those yellow lights that, again, diffused um, the light source, didn't necessarily reduce the heat, but it did reduce some insects. Then we went from mercury to sodium vapor. That also helped. But I will tell you now, from what I have seen, and this is me just doing my random observations. LED lighting, it's bright white, but it doesn't have a heat. And I am not seeing as many insects being attracted to it. I don't know if anybody else has tried this on their front porch, trying to change lighting or anything around parking lots because I've seen that as well. But that is one of the things. I mean, the other thing is simply turning on and turning off, putting lights on timers. I tell schools all the time, if you can turn the lights on an hour after sunset and turn them off an hour before sunrise, it will dramatically drop the amount of flying insect pests that are out. But they're out all night. If you've ever watched a security camera, there's lots of things that fly at night and there may not be a whole lot of lighting, but the more the lighting, the more they are attracted to. So you want to change bulbs or, you know, even you can direct lighting to certain areas. <laughs> like if you want the insects to come, that's, I mean, that's essentially what entomologists do when we're using light trapping. We set up that light in a certain area to draw the insects in there. And so that's, it's a great way to capture insects. Um, so you can actually use that to monitor if you want. I was going to say, if you didn't want the insects at your front door, but you want your front door lighted. So you put the, the light on the front door, but maybe you put the light away from the structure. 
In other words, on a pole, on a tree or something, and it's aimed at your front door rather than you're walking underneath that light and then the bugs are buzzing your head. That's a great, great idea. So something that we need to also, I think, cover is if people have concerns when they, when they are outside or like if you're out camping or if, um, if they have animals that they keep outside. So what are some control methods for either one of those strategies? So let's say if they had a dog kennel outside what, or a dog run that they keep their dogs in overnight, what would be a good way for them to manage, um, or avoid kissing bugs from getting to those animals? I again would go with some of the lighting, how you have the kennel structure. Um, what is around the kennel? I mean, you don't want them on concrete, but you don't want a lot of tall grass around it as well. I mean, we're not just talking about kissing bugs. We're, now we're talking when you're talking tall grass, ticks and other things. So the cleaner you can keep it so that you can see if something's there, but also again, lighting. You know, if they've got a dog house, making sure you check the inside frequently. And I just want you guys to know what I was really thinking about when you were talking about kissing bugs and seeing things this time of year, I was thinking of all of our hunter friends. Yeah, Maybe so that, that would be the next one, right? So if you're out um, hunting or camping or hiking or whatever, um, you know, sleeping in a sleeping bag, this is one of those things that you do need to be aware of, you know, check the area where you are. And I, I personally, I wouldn't use a bright light. I would use a red bulb in a light so I can see, but it's not going to be attractive to those insects. And that way I can take a look around Robert. I know you hunt. So what, what do you do? Yeah. So I actually have run into a number of folks who have found uh, kissing bugs in deer blinds, right? So these are if folks aren't familiar with the deer blind, it's a small structure that allows a hunter to maintain hidden. Um, but other things like to get in deer blinds during the other, you know, 10 months of the year when a hunter's not sitting in them, including rodents, um, and other would be hosts for kissing bugs. So kissing bugs find the deer blinds and get in. And so um, one of the things I've suggested uh, in the past is if, uh, if hunters maintain blinds uh, around their um, uh, hunting ranches, releases, et cetera, there's a product called Nuvan Pro Strips, which is basically basically a fumigant strip. Um, and you can hang these in a blind. They last you know, a quarter of the year. You can replace them as the year goes on. And they remove them before hunting season, which is November, often cool, and the blinds are elevated typically. And so you don't have to worry so much about insects getting in. The other cool thing is that it prevents wasps from building nests inside and, and uh, allowing lots of other insects to get in. So that, that's, that's one recommendation. Those are not safe for insects and they're not safe for people either to, to spend time in a space that's occupied by one of those uh, new van pro strips. So the, the point I'd like to make is that if, if somebody takes me up on that and hangs these in their deer blind, make sure uh, the day before, whenever you get to the lease, you take those out of the blind to give it ample time to air out. 
So, so I've mentioned these new band pro strips a number of times. The active ingredient in, in those products is dichlorobos. Um, and it's Wizzy mentioned it off gases from the medium that carries it a polymer strip. Um, th there are some other products that also have dichlorobos as the active ingredient, like uh, no pest strips and, and many others. So um, that, that active ingredient is very good for, for achieving the goal of killing insects in enclosed spaces. And they're very good for, um, for sheds, outbuildings around houses, um, et cetera. Um, it, it's a good product for this application. And they're, they're easy to sort of calculate um, based on the, um, uh, uh, the volume of the space that you want to protect. There's a, there's a, a formula on the labeling that allows you to determine how many of those strips you need to use. And, and they're, they're very effective. So what about repellents? I know a lot of people were like, well, I'm just going to spray some off on me and hope that that works. I haven't seen any research that actually shows that repellents actually repel kissing bugs. Anybody? Yeah, me either. <laughs> me either. That's a good, yeah, that makes me think about that. Because usually you think of those repellents often things as repelling things that are seeking a blood meal. So you would think it would work, but you're right. There hasn't, I haven't seen anything to prove that it does or doesn't. That doesn't mean that it may not work. That just means that maybe that research hasn't been carried out yet. So true. It might be a good project for somebody to do. I was just about to say, that's the other thing that means is that we ought to look into that. <laughs> Got all sorts of project ideas here. All right. So anything else that anybody can think about that we need to cover about kissing bugs? Well, I think the, the, the only thing that I, th I think we didn't really address is if, you, you know, if you have these insects, if you discover them in your home, sort of what you do next. Um, and, you know, I remember reading in the past one of uh, Dr. Merchant's, Dr. Mike Merchant's, now retired Dr. Mike Merchant's articles, and um, basically said he was giving advice to folks that take this on as a do-it-yourself project. And, and his advice was, well, since there aren't a lot of products that are labeled for kissing bugs specifically, um, typically contact residual contact insecticides that would be used for cockroaches in the interior of a home are effective at treating these treating for these guys. You treat the baseboards and corners, cracks and crevices, et cetera. Right. Like and if you are treating for these, whether it's inside of the house or if it's in a dog run or something like that, any pets or something that you have in those spaces need to go to another area as you're treating, wait until that product dries, and then you can move them back in. And like Wizzy said earlier, just because you find one in your house doesn't mean you have to, you know, burn your house down and nuke everything exclusion is probably the first thing that I would recommend. And if you cannot figure out how they're making their way inside, you can't reduce lighting that's attracting them, then you can rely on pesticides. But oftentimes these guys can be managed effectively with exclusion and uh, light management. All right. So anytime that you are choosing to use a pesticide of some sort, you need to make sure that you are reading and following those labeled instructions. Um, it's a very important thing to make sure that you are using them in the way that they're meant to be used in the location that they are meant to be used and that you're following the personal protective equipment that you also need to utilize. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Unwanted Guests. While kissing bugs are something to watch for around your home, they shouldn't be something that you need to panic over. Please listen to our previous podcast on exclusion to get tips on how to keep these bugs outside where they belong. And for more information, go to kissingbug.tmu.edu. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you.